God is in control. God has a plan. He's intentionally doing things behind the scenes. And lastly, and this is the greatest sign of hope, I think, is that in the midst of the chaos, we can be assured that God isn't going to let this persist forever, but that soon, very soon, he will return and set all things right. Three very simple, very important truths that we can cling to, and that's what Jesus shares with us today. Again, God is still good, God is still in control, and God is coming back very soon. I said this comes out of a parable. It's found in Matthew 13. It's on page 684 in your pew Bibles, and I invite you to open up with me. Matthew chapter 13, starting in verse 24, and we are going to work our way through this passage together. Matthew 13, verse 24. The parable is pretty simple. You're, you're going to see it's, it's a parable about weeds and wheat, and I'm very, like, uh, mindful or, or thought, thinking of this, there's a word there that I'm not putting in, um, that I'm going to say the word weed. Somebody planted weed in the garden. No, no, it's not weed. It's weeds. But, you know, I work with teenagers, so one just comes up more than the other. So if I say weed, please forgive me. I meant weeds, plural. Okay. But it's a parable about wheat and weeds. And it's very simple. It's where did the weeds come from? That's the answer. I mean, or that's, the, that's what the parable is addressing. Where did the weeds come from and what are we going to do about them? And as I said, they're going to reveal certain things about the character of God that we can cling to in the midst of an evil world. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat. And then he went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, uh, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where did these weeds come from? The owner replied, An enemy did this. The servants then asked him, Well, do you want us to go do something about it? Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, I don't want you to go pull them up because while you're pulling up the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them and that's just not acceptable. Instead, let both of them grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned. Then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. This is the word of the Lord. So it's, a, it's kind of a simple parable, Right? It's one of those parables. I love Jesus' parables because they're kind of like urban legends. You hear it once and you just memorize it, right? You, you've all heard the one about the guy that like is going to knock you out and steal your kidneys the next morning and you wake up in a tub, whatever it is. You've heard the story once, you remember it. That's like a parable too. You hear the story once, you remember it because it just shakes you. It's simple. That's what this parable is. That was a really dumb analogy. <laughs> It worked for me. Uh, but that's how this parable goes. It's simple. It's easy to kind of understand. And yet at the same time, it's just loaded with meaning. Here's the plan this morning then. Here's what I want to do, how I want to approach this parable. I want to do it in two ways. The first is this. I want to look at this parable in its most basic form, meaning the way we just read it apart from Jesus' later interpretation. You may notice, even as it's on there, verses 36 to 43 
Jesus actually explains the meaning of this parable to his disciples. But before we get to the explanation, before we get to Jesus' main point that the parable says, I think it's important for us to step back and see what else the parable can teach us. And we hit on this a little bit last week, but I think this is important. When we read parables, you need to understand that almost all parables have one main point. Almost all parables, pretty much all parables, have one main point. Jesus intended one thing in them. But just because there's one main point doesn't mean parables don't also have subsequent minor points or other things that they can teach us. And this one is loaded with other things that it can teach us. And so the reason I'm holding off on getting to Jesus' interpretation at first is because I want, it to, I want to be able to see, okay, well, what else does this parable have to teach us? Then I promise we will jump to Jesus' explanation and tie the whole thing together. Because really what he does is he just enhances our understanding of the whole thing. So that's the plan this morning. And so first, let's just look at verse 27, or excuse me, verse 24. Let's just start in there. I'm going to read through to 27, and we'll see what this reveals about the farmer, what this reveals about the world. And remember, our sole goal is trying to answer two questions today. Why is there evil in the world, and what is God doing about it? That's what we're kind of approaching this with. So Jesus told him another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat, and then he went away. When the weeds sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, um, Sir, uh, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? I should probably confess, um, as I read this, I have grown very fond of these servants. I've grown very fond of them because as I read them, I'm like, oh, they asked the questions that I would have asked. But the confession part is, I always read them with the dumbest voice in my head. I make them sound so dumb. I don't know what it is. But so like, I imagine them coming to work one day and they're on their way to the owner's house and they're passing by the field that they had just planted and they start looking, oh, good, look, Joseph, or another good Jewish name, um, Look at those, there's the wheat that's starting to spread. But hey, what's that? What's that? That's a weed. That's a weed. Hey, there's weeds all over this field. And so they walk over to the owner and they're like, uh, Mr. Owner, sir, um, farmer, farmer man, farmer John, um, uh, there's weeds in the field. Why are there weeds in the field? Did you put the weeds in the field? Is this a part of the plan? We didn't get the memo. Why are there weeds in the field? This doesn't make any sense. What they're getting at is this. They're tapping into an underlying assumption, right? An underlying assumption that says the farmer couldn't possibly have planted weeds in the field because the farmer would only want to produce things or only want to plant things that produce good in the field. The weeds are counter to that. The farmer would have never done that. And so what they get at is a very simple idea. There is something wrong here. There is evil in the garden. This was not what was intended. Why is there evil in the garden? Why are there weeds? They're asking the same question we are. I mean, it's the same one. Why is the world so messed up? 
Why is there evil in the world? Why are there weeds in the field? They ask the same question, and there's this assumption. You couldn't possibly have done this. And the farmer goes, you're right, I didn't do this. He says, verse 28, an enemy did this. An enemy did this. Someone opposed to the work of the farmer came in and began to sow seeds of deceit. Someone opposed to the farmer came in and messed up the plan. The farmer never intended weeds for his field. The farmer only intended good for the world, good for the field. But somebody else came and messed things up. Isn't this Genesis 1 and 2? I mean, Genesis 1 through 3, really? If you go back and you look at the beginning, the book of Genesis, this is the fundamental question that is addressed in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. In Genesis chapters 1 and 2, you have God creating everything. And at the end of creation, he stands out and he surveys creation. He goes, this is good. This is good. My favorite definition of good. I don't know where I heard this from, but I love this definition. Good means exactly as it should be. When something is good, it is as it should be. So in other words, the farmer then would look out at his field in Genesis 1 and 2. God looks out at his world and declares, this is exactly as it should be. This is exactly as I intended it to be. It is a field full of wheat. But Genesis 3, we find out what happened. We find out that an enemy has come in and begun to sow seeds of deception within the garden. The enemy comes, the serpent comes to Eve and begins to make her think and doubt and question what's going on. And so she begins to ask simple questions that we all ask, but that lead us away from the Father. And we ask these questions, does God really know best? I think God knows more than you and he's just holding back on you. And Eve began to doubt the goodness of God. Eve began to doubt that God really had her best uh, intentions in mind. And so she goes against what God has to say. And in doing so, she's taken of a from a place where she is a person who is for God, a person who is pro-God, and placed in a position of opposition. She is oriented away from God. She now is on the opposite side. She has become a wheat that has become a weed. What we learn then through that story and through this story again is this. God never intended evil for the field. Never. It was an enemy who came and messed things up. So if God didn't create the evil, what does this at least teach us about God? What can we, te what can we learn about God from this very simple point that he didn't create the evil? Where, well, it's this. You reap what you sow. In other words, whatever it is that comes out of you is indicative of who you are. This is a very fundamental biblical principle, right? It's not what goes into you that defiles you. It's what comes out of you that is indicative of who you are. And so this is what you make is reflective of you. And so what God made was good. Therefore, God is good. God couldn't have made something counter to his character. He had to make what was reflective of himself. So God makes something that is good. And therefore, if God made something good, his essence, his nature, his very character, his value, his hisness is good. 
And his nature doesn't change. God doesn't wake up one morning and go, yeah, today I'm going to be good, but tomorrow I'm going to be evil for a little bit. And then, okay, I had my fun being evil. I'm going to flip-flop back to good. No, you can't do that. Because as soon as you allow evil to come in, you're no longer good. You're a mix. You're a hybrid. You're good-bad. Bad good, however you want to say it. But you cannot be solely good. But Jesus declares that only God is good. God's essence doesn't change. God didn't become evil overnight. God has never become evil. Evil is the complete antithesis of God. And therefore, what we learn in this passage is a very simple, fundamental truth. If God was good when he created the world and God's essence doesn't change, it means God is still good today. God is not a vindictive, mean, evil God. God is not a God that goes, well, you know, fight for yourself, children. I'm going to go take care of myself and sit on the couch. That's the opposite of who God is. God is good. God is holy. God is loving. God is active and engaged and gracious and merciful and full of justice. That is our God. He is good. And so regardless of what is going on in the world, it doesn't change who God is. God is still good. But if God is still good, then why doesn't he do something about this, right? Isn't this the question the atheists ask constantly? If God is good, as you say he is good, then how could he possibly allow evil to persist? Why doesn't he intervene? Is he not able? Is he not capable of intervening? Is he not capable of doing something? Is there something about the world and the chaos within it that is beyond the scope of his power? This is where our friends, the servants, come in. Verse 28. The servants then asked him, so we get that you're good. We get that you didn't do this. Well, do you want us to do something about this? Do you want us to go in and, and pull up those weeds? I love these servants because they have the same approach to life as we do. They see a problem, and so they come up with the very best of intentions. They come up with a solution, Right? And so they see it. They're like, well, you know, there's a weed. I can go yank that sucker up. No problem. Watch me. Watch. I can do this. I can yank weeds all day going through that garden. I could do this. And the other guy's like, well, I'll go to the weed killer store. I'll buy the weed killer. I can squirt. I can take care of the weeds. They see a problem. And just like us, they begin to automatically assume, well, if you just did this, if you did that or you did the other thing, then everything would be okay. The problem is, they're so small-minded. They don't see the bigger picture. They have no possible idea of what they're saying. Yes, their solution might solve a very short-term, short-sighted problem. But it's going to do more harm than good. Look at what he says. Verse 29. No, I don't want you to go and just start yanking weeds out of my garden. Because while you're pulling up the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. I don't want you to damage my garden. What it is, is that what he's saying is this, is you do not see the bigger picture. You have no idea what you're saying. You see some minor problem today. And I admit, it's a problem. 
but you have no idea how to actually deal with that problem. And you're going to get in that mess with the best of intentions and you're going to make it so much worse. And I think most of us can relate to this. Most of us have experienced this, right? You're sitting there and you're talking with your children, you're talking with a friend, you're talking with a coworker, whatever it is, and you see a problem. You see a problem at the church and you're like, I know the solution. If everybody just listened to me, I'm gonna go take care of this. And so you jump into the mix and you start making changes, you start fixing things, and sure, you think you did good, but as soon as you get in the mix, you realize, oh my goodness, this problem is so much bigger than I could have ever anticipated. This is so much more systemic than I could have ever imagined. And that good that you thought you did actually caused so much more damage than you could have ever imagined. God is saying that is what evil is today, is yes, it's not taking away from the fact that there is evil in the world. Evil is still existing we see it all the time, but these solutions and these problems that we think, or these solutions to the problems we think we have, they're never going to address the greater issue. They're just going to cause more problems. And so what the farmer says is, no, don't do that, because here's the thing, you don't see the bigger picture, but the farmer sees the bigger picture. The farmer gets it. The farmer's got a bigger perspective than you and I could ever imagine. We're focused on the weed. He's focused on the wheat. He's focused on the world at large. Not just this small little problem standing in front of you. So he has an answer. He has an answer, verse 30. Instead, let them both grow together until the time of the harvest. And at that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. Then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. In other words, the farmer is saying, again, you guys don't have the big picture perspective. I see the whole field. I understand the timeline of history. I get what's going on. There is a moment when it is time to act. There is a moment when it is time to do something about it. That moment is not right now. In other words, what the farmer is communicating here is, I have a plan. I have a plan I know best. Don't worry about it. I'm actively working behind the scenes to take care of it. I know what I'm doing. In other words, God is still in control. He's not throwing his arms up and walking away, which is from our perspective what he's doing. If anything, and what this parable and the next two weeks worth of parables is going to show us is God is agonizingly sitting on the side while, this, uh, while the, the kingdom of God is coming to fruition in the world. He has to be there agonizingly on the side, but he's not agonizingly throwing his arms up going, well, I don't know what to do about it. He's got a plan. He's actively engaged. He's doing something, but what's the plan? What's the plan? Something about a harvest and stuff. Well, this is where Jesus' interpretation is necessary. This is where you have to look back to Jesus and say, okay, well, what are you getting at? And if you looked at verses 36 to 43, Jesus' disciples apparently had the same kind of questions that we did. They come to Jesus and they go, we didn't get that one. Can you explain to us that weeds and wheat parable thing again? I want to make sure I get that one clear. And he says, sure, I'll explain it to you. And what he explains is this. The field represents the world. And there's two types of people in the world. The good people who are pro-God 
pro-kingdom, those who believe in God and are for the things of God, and those who are opposed to the things of God, and those are the weeds. The wheat are the pro-God, the weeds are the anti-God, if you will. And what he says is the harvest is representative of that time in the end of days, that moment in time, that moment in history when God will send his angels through the world and he will separate those who are for God from those who are against God. And those who are for God will go to be in his barn. Those who are for God will go to be in his presence, will go to be with him fully. And those who are opposed to God, they will be set out and thrown out where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. A very terrible image terrible image. There will be a separation. In other words, what he's getting at is this. God's plan, very simply, is big picture. God's plan does not have to do with just the minute details of what is going on today. God's plan takes in the whole of human history, and what this parable does is it gives us a glimpse at the end times. Just a glimpse. Again, just like the whole problem of evil and what God is doing about it, it doesn't satisfy us. It doesn't answer all of our questions, all of our concerns. All it does is it gives us a truth to cling to. And the truth is very simple. God is active in the world. God has a plan. God knows the date. God is ready to do something. And so here's the thing. The only other thing we get out of this parable is this idea that there is an appointed time. Well, when is that? This is where we have to go outside of the parable. Jesus says, no one knows the date nor the hour of when this time will come. We don't know that. We have no clue. There's no way we could know. And if Jesus didn't know, I'm not going to pretend to tell you I know. That would be stupid. Right? No one knows the date nor the hour. But just because we don't know the date or the hour doesn't mean it's not a fixed moment in history. God planned way in advance the exact moment. He knows it. It's on his calendar. He's ready for it. It's not like God is sitting up in heaven again on his lazy boy going, yeah, I guess today I can go save the world. No, you know what? Actually, I want to sit here and eat more bonbons. That's not what God is doing. God is patiently, agonizingly waiting for this moment in history. And at this moment in history, what the scriptures reveal to us is a very amazing thing. Because in this moment in history, God will step into the world and he will abolish evil once and for all. All the injustices of the world, they are going to be made right. All the vengeance that needs to be sought will be rightly served. And from that day forward, when this happens, this is the amazing part. Jesus will come once again he will be established as a king he will be enthroned and all the nations of the earth will fall down before him every tribe every tongue will then profess Christ is king and from that moment forward we are told there will be no more death no more mourning no more crying no more pain because the old order of things has passed away in other words the evils of today the stuff that we are bombarded with today it'll be done It'll have, it won't have a resurgence. Evil doesn't get the last word. In the end, God is victorious. That's the plan. That's the plan. In the end, God will come and set all things right. And here's the thing. This isn't a plan God decided, yeah, I guess I can make this up, you know, now, I guess, you know, he stewed on it for a few years. This plan is actually revealed in Genesis 3. 
don't know if you know this, Genesis 3.15 actually gives us the first prophecy of the day when evil will be defeated. It talks about the moment when the Son of Man will come and bruise his heel as he crushes the head of the serpent. The moment when the Son of Man comes and defeats evil once and for all and does away with it. This has been the counter plan from the beginning. The original plan was never to have bad in the world, but then he had to respond, and this was the immediate response. He knew the day would come when he would set all things right. Brothers and sisters, this is the message we need to hear today. This is the message we need to hear in the world that God is still good. We need to share that with each other. God is still in control. It may not look like it, but God is still in control. He has a plan. He is working behind the scenes to do stuff. He's active. But most of all, he promises that soon, very soon, he will come and set all things right. These are truths we need to cling to. These are truths that will give us the anchor we need in the midst of the chaos. We will not lose our footing if we cling to these truths. And so brothers and sisters, when we see things on TV, when we are having conversations with each other, or someone in our family is diagnosed with something horrible, or something horrible happens, these are the truths we need to speak to each other. You don't understand, God is still good. God hasn't abandoned you. God is still in control and soon God's gonna make all things right. These are truths we need for each other. But here's the thing, these aren't just truths that we need to hear. These are truths the world needs to hear. Guys, there is way too many people selling fear and selling hate and selling anger out there. Our political leaders are doing it. They're just shifting blame to everybody else. They're not speaking messages of hope. They're not speaking messages of truth. And so all they're doing is causing more chaos. They're like the little, the little servants in the field going, oh, I got a solution, I'm gonna do this. But they don't see the bigger picture. We need people who are gonna speak about the bigger picture that no, God is still in control here. You may not see this, but this fits into a broader plan. You don't understand, look at the scope of human history. We're just a blip. We're vapor, as James describes it. Here today, gone tomorrow. It's not long term. We need people that speak this hope into the world. Brothers and sisters, I have Facebook. I do. I was on it this morning. There is so much of the opposite on Facebook. And so few people who are speaking confidently about the goodness of God in the world, who are pointing to the goodness of God. I think about this, and I love this little spouse challenge thing that's going on. I love that people are stopping and slowing down and just saying, I love my spouse for this reason. I think that's a really great thing. I think that's great. But we could expand that. We could expand that. Drew's probably catchy enough to come up with a cool hashtag for it. I'm not. Um, I'm not that cool. But what would it look like if we just continually affirmed in the world the good things of God? If we spoke about the good things? Or more than that, what if we sought to deliver this hope in some way? We talked about Lee and Katie. Lee and his wife Katie. They're in Ukraine right now on a missions trip. Their sole goal isn't to throw their hands up and go, well, we can't do anything about this. Their goal is, you know what, in the midst of the chaos that is Ukraine, we're going to love people. 
We're going to love them as Jesus loved them. They're just listening to what Jesus said. They're listening to the farmer. They're not coming up with a long-term solution, but they're dealing with the problem. And so they're going and they're loving and they're sharing the hope of the gospel. That's what they're doing. We're going to send a team of middle school students today down to San Diego to do the same thing. They're going to go work in um, senior care centers. They're going to go work with schools. They're going to be working with all sorts of people. And their sole goal, again, share the hope of the gospel. Share the love that is going out there. I love this guy, too, that's on social media right now. He's a black guy who um, is just handing out free hugs to cops. It's his thing. I think that's fantastic. So good. And the videos that I've watched with the cops is they're like, yeah, we need more of this. We need people who are not spewing the hate but are going the opposite way. And here's the thing. I really struggle to say, okay, well, and so here today, boys and girls, this is what you can go and do individually in your life as you walk out the doors. I had a hard time with that. I'm not going to pretend to tell you I know exactly what it looks like for you to share the hope of the gospel with people. I think this is something you and I are going to need to wrestle with continually in our lives. But I know what it's not. And I know it's not fueling the anger and the bigotry that exists in the world. That doesn't help anybody. There is something about listening to the voice of Jesus and recognizing that all people have worth in God's eyes. All people, not just those who look like us, not just us who share our beliefs, all people. And we need to love them and at the same time, we need to pray for our enemies. That's the best we can do in the meantime. But in that, we see that God is working behind the scenes. So here you go, very simple message this morning. God is still good. God is still in control, and soon God will make all things right. That's the message we share with each other. That's the message we share out those doors, and frankly, that's the message that should drive our prayers. So this morning, I invite you to pray with me. Father, we confess, Lord, that you are good. Lord, we recognize that we do not fully understand your goodness, your mercy, your justice. Lord, we are so bombarded with the junk of this life that often we miss the bigger picture. Often we miss what you are up to. And more than that, it clouds our picture of who you are. But we're grateful for your word, that in your word, we are given a crystal clear picture that you are good. We are given a picture of who you are at your core and we are reminded that nothing about you is evil. Lord, I pray that your spirit would continue to remove the scales of our eyes as you did for Paul and allow us to see you as you are. Lord, the the junk of this world has clouded our vision and has changed the way we see you. Lord, remove the scales so we can see you as good. Lord, at the same time, through your spirit, will you remind us that you are in control and will you give us glimpses of it, whether it's through healings that you accomplish or just prayers that you continue to answer or peace that you bring to certain situations. May we be reminded of the fact that you are still in control. But most of all, Lord, I pray that you would develop within us through your spirit, cultivate a heart that longs for your return, longs for the day, Lord, when you will come and make all things right and that we would not only long for that, but that would drive our conversations, that would drive the way we think about politics, that would drive the way we care for our neighbor, that would drive the way we pray for our enemies. Lord, that we would be driven by hope and love. 
So Lord, we pray for our world today. Lord, as it is a broken and hurting place. Lord, we pray that your goodness would be made evident to all people, whether that's through you sending rain on those who need rain, whether that's in you providing food to those who are hungry or comfort to those who have lost someone. Lord, may your goodness be seen. At the same time, Lord, may your power be made evident all over this world. May it be clear that these politicians, whoever they are in whatever parts of the world, they do not have sovereign authority, but you have sovereign authority. You are the one who is in absolute control. And may you humble those who somehow have become proud and who have somehow, like King Nebuchadnezzar, have exalted themselves above you. Humble them. And in the same way, Lord, we pray for a longing in our world for your justice. A longing, Lord, for you to come and quench the, the unfairness that exists, for you to bring vindication and make all things right. And may we, as we wait, may we not seek that vindication on our own, but may we trust in you. We ask all of this in Jesus' powerful and precious name. Amen.